Furthermore, the equation E is equal mc square. Hello and welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio podcast. I am Isaiah Hankel with Cheeky Scientist. We have a great show for you today. This is the radio show for PhDs who want to get hired into their first or next job in industry and who want to thrive in business. Thank you for joining us. Here we go. So if you are watching us on our live stream on the Facebook fan page, welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Today we're talking about new strategies for networking to get a job for PhDs who dislike, maybe even hate. That's an intense word though, but hate networking. It's okay. Every, every one of us has hated a networking experience in the past. We're going to make sure that you do not hate it in the future. We're going to talk about differences between networking and connecting. We have a very special guest, David Bradford on, who uh, has the best-selling book, Up Your Game. He's known as the human internet. He, I think he's given over 100, which is a, a lot, over 100 recommendations on LinkedIn. Written, carefully written recommendations. We're going to talk to him. He's met Steve Wozniak. Uh, he uh, is the CEO of Fluent Worlds. Lots to talk to him about. Then we'll be talking with Asia Davis Isbell about how PhDs can get into a business career and up their game in terms of business acumen. And then we'll be talking to Yara Lopez. Yara is in a clinical research associate role. We have a lot of PhDs going into these roles. We're going to talk about some of the roles that pharma biotech are really looking for right now in terms of PhDs that they're, they're having a hard time filling uh, some specific functional roles. And who are they looking for to fill these functional roles now? PhDs. But very likely you're invisible to these employers. Why? Because you have no industry network. You have no industry credibility. One of the biggest mistakes we see a lot of PhDs making is they don't understand the difference between connecting and networking. There is a difference. Very simple example. Most of you have gone to a poster session, a conference, right? You've collected business cards. You felt probably very a professional. You felt like you were adulting at this time. And then you went back after the conference. You had your nice stack of business cards. You said, oh, I networked. This is my chance. Somebody will have discovered me, right? Because they have my business card now, or maybe you made your own business card, you had a university card, but they never contacted you and you never reached out to anybody on those business cards. And now that stack is sitting in your desk. It's on your lab bench. What happened? You weren't networking at that time. You were connecting. Networking is what happens during the follow-up process. Yes, where you have to take action, but this is good news for most of you because as a PhD, maybe you're a little bit introverted. You are used to working on your own. You have a sense of autonomy and you can get a lot done on your own, which means today's environment in terms of what technology allows in terms of networking makes you a expert networker if you apply the principles we're going to talk about today. So you have to know that connecting is what happens when you meet them the first time. Networking is what happens during the follow-up process. That's where the professional relationship is really built. And there is a specific scientific stepwise sequence or protocol or methodology to use words you've probably heard before, um, to doing this. And that's what we're going to go through today. So I'm very excited for today's radio show. We're going to jump in uh, and, and talk about a, a few things here at the very beginning that have to do specifically with networking. Um, but before we jump in, we're going to cover a, a couple of housekeeping items. And the very first thing I want to show you is we have a show up bonus 
for everyone watching now, whether you're watching us on a public stream or you are a member, you can get these five networking hacks for PhDs. We'll put the link in the chat box. We'll put it in the comment box, whether you're watching us on YouTube or if you're watching us on our, the Facebook live stream. Five networking hacks for PhDs. If you're listening to us on the podcast after the show, make sure you show up live to get this bonus, though we will have a, a podcast bonus for you too if you keep listening. Next, I do want to mention this article has really taken off. It's a great article. I highly recommend that you read it. It was recently published to our site, Increase Your Hireability as a PhD by Knowing These Seven Industry Trends. Why should you care about industry trends? We're going to talk about it a little bit later today, but the more you understand industry trends, the more awareness you're going to have in terms of what jobs are opening up, right? Which markets are hot? Who's hiring PhDs? These seven industry trends are crucial. You must understand them. It's a very quick read. Make sure that you check it out. We'll put the link in the chat box and in the comment boxes as well. You might be thinking, well, why do I want to read only cheeky scientist articles about getting hired? We don't recommend that. So what we do is we scour the internet for all PhD level articles on getting hired. Okay. There's a lot of misinformation out there. So what we do is we curate all of the best information online every week in our best of this week industry articles. If you go to our website, you can subscribe to get these delivered to your email inbox every week. We, have, we choose the top overall article for you. These aren't our articles. They're articles from all over the internet, so you don't have to go anywhere else. We choose the top five for networking, CVs and resumes, interviews, transferable skills, industry positions, business acumen. We even have a couple of job posts there for you that you won't see anywhere else. Okay, so I do want to mention one other thing too. We are doing a very special webinar sponsored by Scientist MBA. It's one of our advanced programs. This is something we do very rarely publicly. So if you are watching us publicly, you can join this webinar um, if you're watching this now. The, this webinar is called Become Viable for Executive Level Positions by Understanding Mergers and Acquisitions. Mergers and Acquisitions, or M&A, is probably something that you've heard a lot about as a PhD. Sounds really cool, but you really have no idea how it works. You don't understand what a merger versus an acquisition is, or you do on a very, very superficial level. You don't understand restructurings, why they're important, how it's uh, tied to a corporate strategy or the corporate culture, um, how it can affect the strategy or, uh, or culture. This is a, a fantastic webinar that's next, that's tomorrow, the next day. It's tomorrow and it starts at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Make sure you sign up for this webinar. We'll put it again in the chat box and we will put it um, in the comment section on our public pages too. So the URL for that, for those of you watching by audio, is uh, listening by audio, is cheekyscientist.com slash mergers dash and dash and, no, just one and, dash acquisitions dash webinar. So CheekyScientist.com, Mergers and Acquisitions webinar with a dash in between each word after the slash. And again, we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put that in the chat boxes as well. Okay, so as always, we're starting with a show me the data section. We're PhDs after all, so let's look at the data. We're going to be talking again about new networking strategies for PhDs who dislike, maybe even hate networking. And I'm going to bring on... Let me stop sharing here. Just type in yes if you can, if you're one of the members, if you were able to see my screen. I wanna make sure we were all able to see the screen. You should just be seeing me now though, but previously, great. I'm gonna bring on Mary, our co-host, who's gonna join us today. And we're gonna walk through the Show Me the Data section with Mary. Hi, Mary, how are you? I'm great, Isaiah, how are you? 
I'm good. Let me see here. Oh, I had it on gallery. There we go. So please say hello to Mary in the chat box if you can. Mary and I are going to go through the show me the data section. This is uh, one of the things I think we enjoy the most again as PhDs. We get to look at the data and then we get to talk about the data with, the, with our special guests that we bring on. So I'm going to share my screen again. Mary, did you have something to say? Are you just, yep. getting, just getting ready? Okay. <laughs> Mary's just excited. I am too. Okay. So I'm going to make my screen a bit bigger here. Can you type in yes one more time in the chat box if you can see the screen? Thank you, Jessica, Sarada, Tina, Verena. Great to see you on. Zhang. Hello, Becky. Thank you. Thank you all. Ram, how are you? How many of you are new members that are joining us today live? Any new members from the past two, three weeks, let's say? Tina is, Videya is. Great to see you on. Jessica, hello. Vijaya, great to see you on. Okay, so the title of this first figure is Academics and Social Networking Sites, Benefits, Problems, and Tensions in Professional Engagement with Online Networking. So we commonly break down networking into offline or in-person or face-to-face -face and online, of course. So this is focusing on online. This is in an article on um, an ed.gov article uh, on files.com. So what we're looking at here is a orb, right? Like a circle with lots of different lines and it's drawing some connections um, between a variety of things. So we'll go through, there's kind of four quadrants. It's a unique figure, but I, I think it's a fun figure. And in the first quadrant, there's spam, digital inclusion, digital literacy, literacy, forbidden by institution, benefits of younger academics, and then you go into quadrant two, and we start talking about too many sites, time concerns, social aversion, unreliable information online, privacy and security, not perceived to be useful, prefer other types of networking. And then in three, find potential collaboration, so we start getting more and more positive here, right? Supports multiple profiles, helping others, Directory of Academics, Improve Scientific Process, Find Information in Papers, Track Impact. We get into Quadrant 4 and we start talking about raising your own professional profile. Um, in other words, increasing your visibility, and that's an important part of getting hired, actually being visible to employers. Uh, dissemination of content, discussion, etc. So there's a lot of different lines connecting these two, and really what it's looking at is, okay, what's the positive Again, the benefits, the problems with online networking. And a lot of you can probably identify with this. Online networking is a very powerful tool if you use it correctly. But if you get sucked in and let it control you and you get lost online, and for some reason it's very easy for PhDs to do this, right? We go down this rabbit hole and we look up and two hours have passed and maybe we've been researching something that led nowhere or wasn't even important. So priority is an important thing. We've all experienced the negative side and the positive side. So Mary, I'm curious for you, when do you feel like you've gotten the biggest benefit out of online platforms specifically related, related to networking and specifically kind of in the, the context of what we, we're, we're seeing here? And when do you feel like it's gone sour or gone bad or has not been useful? Sure, yeah. So I think the, the data is sort of from the academic perspective. So if we rewind to that, I was the stereotype postdoc, totally focused, going down rabbit holes, but working super hard. Um, and yeah, LinkedIn profile, I think I might have had one at some point, um, or made one at some point. But I guess really, what really opened my eyes is t starting to talk to people outside of academia in industry and learning, oh, they actually use this, you know, LinkedIn and, and online and even in person networking, which we can talk about later. 
Um, mm. And it really helped to see the, the benefits. And, and, and these clusters of sort of negatives or positives to networking make a lot of sense. You know, if you, yes. if you don't understand what's going on and you're not used to using this online networking platforms, then you're not going to see the benefits. Um, and they do say that younger academics um, who are more likely to be networking online will see the benefits as well. So mm. it makes a lot of sense. No, I agree. And it really just comes down to who's in control. Are you in control of leveraging these platforms or the platforms in control? And then also, are you using them for the right purpose? I made it, I remember exactly, I made a decision. I said, I'm not going to use Facebook anymore for anything personal. I'm only using it for professional purposes. And I said the same for LinkedIn. And I said, you know, anything personal, I'm just going to use text message. I, I remember this is like my last year of graduate school. And it seemed like a, tough thing at the time because it's so easy to kind of just surf the web in general or any of these different platforms for whatever reason. But once I started using them intentionally and purposefully for my career and for professional networking, it was a big relief. Like I stopped, you know, cause we automatically kind of keep tabs on other people or search what's going on and see what everybody else is doing. And lots of studies show that this can make you feel worse, but when you leverage it for professional connections and networking and you keep it, especially for what, has typically been called like loose connections. We, we talked about several radio shows ago, how these loose connections are the ones that actually lead to job referrals and getting hired. Your close connections don't really do that because they're in a different zone, a different circle. They're there for maybe deeper personal things, but not so much for career advancement. Um, so I think, you know, the key is you're in control, draw the line in the sand one way or the other, however will best suit you. Maybe you say these platforms are what I'm going to use. You can't use all of them. Choose two or three at the most for professional networking and then maybe keep one or two and keep them separate that you use for personal uh, networking or keeping in touch personally. Yeah, I think you really hit on something important to, to emphasize. If you're strategic and intentional in your use, then mm -hmm. you're going to see the benefits and these you know, loose connections, you can connect with them and, and build the relationships. Whereas if you're just reacting and similarly to applying to jobs online on websites, ones that you didn't actually seek out yourself, yes, um, that's, that's not going to be as helpful. So, so it, yeah. it all fits. And, and I think as PhDs, we, we, uh, we like to be objective, which me means we can be black and white too much, right? And we're like, I'm closing down all social media. We have a lot of people, for those of you that are in the program, you're like, why are we using Facebook? I'm using LinkedIn. I'm, I'm going to close it all down. Look, you're in control. Like you're the master of these programs. You use them for your benefit. They're very powerful, right? Which is good and bad. It requires a high level of responsibility, but you know, take that on yourself and you know, put the responsibility on yourself to use them to your advantage in the right ways um, in a positive way. Um, so the, the rest of the figure talks about these different clusters and, and breaks them down in terms of what's positive and what's negative. Right, so in cluster one, the positives were, I'll just talk about the positives, fine information in papers. I think we've all done that. Benefits of younger academics, obviously, to get information, right? When you first start, any, when you start learning about any new field, I think as PhDs, we've all had that aha moment where we're like, wait a second, I can learn anything on my own just by researching it or asking the right people. And, and that's, that's really what cluster one is about. Cluster two, it's improved the scientific process. Cluster three and four have a lot of positives from, again, finding potential collaborators, which we're going to talk a lot about today, um, a directory of academics, but also of potential industry employers, right? You can use it for that reason. Helping others is in cluster four, staying up to date, raising your own profile. 
So we're going to touch on all of these. Um, we're going to move to our second figure, though, for now, uh, the case for face-to-face -face networking. This is from Forbes. I haven't seen anything like this where it really breaks down face-to-face -face networking versus technology-based networking, where you're not really face-to-face. -face. Like, you're seeing my face now, but we're not there in person. So really think about it as in person. The left is showing figure four, which says, why do you prefer in-person face-to-face business meetings and conferences? And there's a list of answers. And then figure five is, why do you prefer technology-enabled meetings? The key here, and Mary said this on our pre-show meeting, is that there's benefits to both, right? Um, very often for face-to-face, -face, it's going to be connecting, but you can do networking there. But the technology really allows you to develop that professional relationship after meeting in person. Um, so the benefits of meeting in person, you build stronger, more meaningful business relationships. Think about that. Okay, I'm going to come back to that. Ability to read body language and facial expressions. Right, if you've read any of these books like Blink or Feast, Thinking Fast and Slow, we make all these snap decisions when we're in person. We see people's faces in person, their mannerisms, body language. It's amazing. Most, more social interaction, more bonding, more complex strategic thinking. That's surprising. Um, better environment for tough, timely decision-making, less opportunity for distractions, higher quality decision-making, easier to focus. Okay, and Mary, what I think about this first one that I notice is a lot of these have to do with things that result from a higher level of trust. Like when you meet somebody in person, there's just another, like we have all of these primal things that go through us. Like once you meet somebody in person, it's just like, okay, they're real. They are human. They understand the empathy level. Studies show the empathy levels skyrocket when you meet somebody in person versus just seeing them online, which allows for everything we're seeing in the top here, right? Stronger, more meaningful relationships, facial expressions, all that stuff. What, do, what are your thoughts? You've gone to live events, what, why, do you, why do you prefer those? What, what are the positives to those over just technology-based meetups? Um, it just allows for spontaneity and to react to your environment. And um, I think that, you know, after a few seconds or a couple of minutes, that just helps you really relax. And I think just looking at this figure here, what really got it for me was that you're not multitasking. You're really focused on the person you're talking with. And I think that speaks to this more strategic thinking. I think, you know, we talk about, about adding value to another person. And, and I know a lot of us are saying, well, how can I add value? I don't, you know, I don't have any value to give. But if you're talking to them and exchanging, mm. you know, in person, these ideas and these ways you can add value, I think, come more naturally. Yeah, I completely agree. And, um, it, you know, it's one of the reasons when you're doing these, like we do these videos, you want to, it's just hard, right? You're staring at the camera and then you always are looking down at the person. It looks like you're distracted. You're not. You're just like, your eyes automatically go to the person you're talking to and you got to look at the camera, which is where the audience is. So there's a lot of these things um, that make it tough to build that trust because as humans, like seeing the eyes, that eye contact, that builds that trust, being there in person, all these other things, you know, body language and stuff that you, you can see of like, especially, you know, below the neck. Um, how people are facing and, and stuff. It can really go a long way. Here's the key. It doesn't take long. And we're going to come back to that when in-person in networking. A lot of us think that we have to hang out at an in-person networking event for hours. You don't. Just meeting that person. These are all like micro, thing, micro decisions, things that are happening in very small amounts of time in people's heads. If you just meet them, everything else you can do can be online afterwards. You just have to meet them. A five-minute interaction, a two-minute interaction. We'll come back to that. So figure five here says, why do you prefer technology-enabled meetups? Um, saves time, <laughs> saves money, more flexibility and location timing, allows me to multitask, increases productivity. 
ability to achieve sessions for later viewing. No big surprises here. It just, it's easier. It's more convenient. Of course it's more convenient. That's why, you know how we talked about the, the two different sides of really getting job referrals through networking, starting with connecting and networking. Okay, they're different. Connecting should be done in person whenever possible. Just go to an event, meet as many people as you can for a two to five minute interaction, right? Get their contact information and then do everything else online because they're gonna, it's gonna be embedded. It's gonna be anchored in them, right? There's a lot of behavioral psychology to this. It's gonna be anchored in them that you've met, that you're trustworthy just because they met you for a couple of minutes. And it really makes the, the rapport building, the professional relationship building so much easier to do online downstream. Yeah, I, I think also, I mean, even follow-up conversations, it's easy to say, oh, I'll just send them an email, I'll send them an email. If you can actually set up a time to get on a call, um, we're using Zoom here, you can get a free account and you can actually at least, mm. you know, um, have a virtual meeting rather than just typing back and forth or, or a telephone. Um, and when negotiating job offers, we always recommend being there in person as well, right? It's, it's for every kind of interaction. And, it's, and, and what I liked about this, if I can continue, is that this represents what business executives experience. This represents what you will experience in industry. And so you need to know the pros and cons ahead of time and, and how, to, how to work with them. Yep. And I think what you're seeing here is that they're both valuable, right? You can't choose one or the other. So again, being black and white and just say, I'm just going to do online. I'm just going to do in person. You got to do both here. I love this final figure. It says, which of the following meeting methods is most conducive to fostering the following key business action attribute or outcome effectively. So it's just saying the red is showing, right? How much of it is, uh, is, is the advantage under the umbrella of an in-person meetup. The green is how much of it's, uh, and the advantage goes to the umbrella of a technology-based meetup. Persuasion, no surprise here, 91%, right, in person. Much more advantageous to meet in person. This is why, guess what? You will have to show up in 90% plus cases to a site visit to meet somebody in person. Like, think about why would, are they still doing site visits today? Why not just do a video call? Why do they still do this? It's because they need to see all of these uh, quote unquote, you know, uh, intangibles, which aren't really, it's just like, are you persuasive? Are that, can they be around you? Are you awkward? They can't tell that by video in most cases, just little things that you may think's not, you know, could never be quantitative. It actually is leadership, engagement, inspiration, decision-making accountability, candor. That's a big one, right? How seriously are you taking this job? How authentic are you? How truthful are you? These things come, really come out in person. How focused are you? Clarity, look at that. Focus is 75% in person. Clarity's 74%. Brainstorming, 73% strategy. I mean, in person wins overall, but there's some key, uh, the, the, the final three, the advantage slightly goes to technology-based, reaching, uh, no, urgency, right? So if you need to meet right away, obviously getting everybody together, especially with these large multinational companies can be difficult, so it makes sense. Data presentation, much easier online. And companies I see really thriving, they tend to do a lot of the data presenting online. Even if pe some people could be meeting in person technically, they do it online because it's easier and it can be recorded and then you can disseminate it to other people and people that don't show up, you can watch it, right? And the final one's information dissemination. Um, but again, the, the in-person experience for high-level brainstorming, decision-making is, is crucial. Any final thoughts on that, Mary? 
I think you said it all. Okay, great. Um, the very last thing I want to cover here before we bring David on is a figure from a Biopharma Dive uh, article called Pharma is Shuffling Around Jobs, but a Skills Gap Threatens the Process. A lot of dynamic changes are happening in pharma, biotech 2, biotech R&D, um, CROs, medical testing labs. Um, we're going to talk to Asia Davis Isbel a little bit later about this, specifically about M&A and some things that ha are happening at, at the high, and high level business uh, activities here. But for those of you looking for jobs, this is important because these employers are looking for novel solutions, novel candidates, and they're going to PhDs. The first one on the list is regulatory affairs and compliance. I mean, Mary, how many people have we seen transition into this role as a percentage over the last year? I mean, it's astounding. So many yeah. PhDs are getting hired into this, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Quality control R&D, obviously, uh, always have, has been, uh, uh, PhDs have always been a feeder into these roles, but they're even more so now. Clinical research, we are bringing on somebody who's a clinical research associate. Most PhDs think you have to have clinical experience to get into these roles. You do not, okay? We're gonna talk about that. Product and process development, data analytics, engineering, manufacturing, medical affairs. So medical affairs is another really big one. It's bottom on the list, but it's actually higher than manufacturing. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, medical science liaison, medical affairs, even medical writing. These are really, really popular. Why do we bring these up? Because the best way to find out about these roles and to get into them is setting up informational interviews, which you have to, first network to be able to set up an informational interview. And we're going to talk about that process today with today's guests. Any final thoughts here, Mary? Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, the transferable skills that are most highlighted for these roles are ones that PhDs are known to possess in spades, mm -hmm. right? Creative thinking, um, critical thinking, all these things that can't be replaced by machines, right? So our skill set is going to be valuable. Um, and this chart is an example of where we can apply it. Yeah, agreed. And a lot of you, you know, sometimes as PhDs, we overthink what it takes to get into a regulatory affairs role or a clinical role or medical affairs. It's the transferable skills, right? They know as a PhD, you have the technical skills or you can learn them on the job, but can you communicate the transferable skills? Because what they're really looking for, especially the hiring managers and recruiters who don't have PhDs that you have to get in with first, comprehension, speed of learning, problem solving, right? Uh, critical decision-making, like Mary said, this is, this is crucial. And we'll talk about this today too and how it relates to building up your network. So thank you, Mary, very much. Please thank Mary in the chat box for coming on. That takes us to the end of the show me the data section. We are going to bring on our first guest, David Bradford. Very excited to have David on. I'm going to show his bio here and then we're going to bring him on and ask him a few questions. He has been called the uh, human uh, what was it? The human internet. I always think human encyclopedia. I forget what that was from, but human internet. And uh, he's met Steve Wozniak. There's a great story there. He's the uh, best-selling author of Up Your Up Your Game. Um, we're going to talk about that too. Uh, David is a proven business leader with over 35 years of experience in the computer industry. Uh, he is the CEO of Fluent Works, which is revolutionizing language training in 3D virtual worlds. David has previously served as CEO and chairman of Higher Value and Fusion IO. Um, both companies reached the Forbes list of America's 50 fastest growing tech companies. Uh, in 2013, he was inducted into the Utah Technology Hall of Fame. Uh, from 80, 1985 to 2000, he served as senior vice president and general counsel of Novel Inc., uh, which is traded on uh, NASDAQ. 
where he helped lead the networking startup through a series of acquisitions, public offerings, and business development activities resulting in sales growth and 35, uh, sales growth of 35 million to 2 billion, quite an increase. He twice served as chairman of the board of the Business Software Alliance, the world's leading industry trade association for the IT industry. Um, he's been honored as the alumnus of the year for the J. Reuben Clark Law School of Brigham Young University. Has a law degree uh, from BYU as well, a master's in business administration from Pepperdine uh, University, and a BA in political science from BYU as well. Uh, he has been nicknamed the human internet by his wife of 43 years, uh, who's, a, who's a doctor as well. She and David were named with four other couples as the top couple in America in 2014. Here is his LinkedIn profile. We like to show him just how engaged PhDs are, so please reach out to him on LinkedIn. Send him a nice message, right, the cheeky scientist way, and uh, let him know how much you enjoyed what he's about to say. David, it's great to have you on. How are you? I think you're on mute. Let me just turn that off. We should be good now. I'm doing fine, Isaiah. Nice to um, visit with you today, and thanks for that kind introduction. It's been a um, wonderful and uh, storied career in many ways. So. We'll dig into some of the details on that as we move forward. Yeah, very impressive. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. As you know, we have a lot of uh, people in uh, STEM on with us, and it's just going to be a great conversation, I think. And the first thing that jumped out to me, out to me I have to ask, how did you get this nickname, uh, The Human Internet? Well, my wife uh, is actually a PhD herself, Dr. Linda Bradford. Yes. Chief has a PhD in instructional technology. And she just has observed, and you mentioned 43 years, it's now 45 years, that bio is a little dated. Congrats. Um, 45 and a half years we've been married and it's wow. been wedded bliss and we work together now in a, a company together. But she's just observed over the years how not only do I know Steve Wozniak, but actually went out, recruited and hired him to work for me. So he worked for me at one of my companies. Wow. Um, and uh, on my current advisory board, I've got Nolan Bushnell, who's the father of video gaming, he invented the Atari. And uh, Larry King's become a dear friend over the years. Uh, wow. Larry's a little older now, but still a dear friend. And uh, we do some things together. So uh, lots of great connections that I've made over the years, but it all starts um, I say that every business transaction has its basis in a personal relationship. And so you have to be genuine in forming those relationships. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. That's fascinating. Um, and I'm curious, just to go off of what you said, I want to get to the book, but can you talk about what it was like to reach out and hire Steve Wozniak? Just because we're talking to a lot of uh, STEM professionals who want to get hired, I'm just curious from your point of view, it might be interesting to hear a, a short version of that story. Well, let, I, let me just say uh, at the outset that I thought your reference to LinkedIn was terrific. And I use it. I have nearly 30,000 connections, direct connections on LinkedIn, but I use it every day. Mm. And uh, it's really been a great blessing uh, for me as I uh, connect with people and build those relationships online as well as offline. Uh, but, um, so, you know, I would encourage people to send a personalized note and a personalized message because 
personal means everything in today's world. It's really easy to go and just click on a like button or a love button, etc. The meaningful connection is when you actually take the time out of your busy day to comment on somebody on a LinkedIn post, on a Facebook post, Instagram, whatever it might be, comment personally. So back to Steve Wozniak, and actually illustrates some of the principles of my book. Uh, as you mentioned, I wrote a book, Up Your Game, Six Timeless Principles for Networking Your Way to the Top. Mm. And um, I, I wanna emphasize that networking, and, and this is the first principle, is all about thinking first of other people. I like to flip networking on its ear to begin uh, thinking about other people. And so I was at a conference and there's lots of background and you can read about it in the book, but I was at a conference in 2009 in Sun Valley, Idaho. I'd done a favor for somebody who'd asked me to meet with his son, talk to him about his legal career, et cetera. And then a son came back to me and says, oh, by the way, I've got one more favor, favor to ask. Can you drive to Sun Valley, Idaho and give a speech at this conference? And I looked it up on Google Maps and it was a five and a half hour drive from where I was. But I thought, you know what? I'll throw my golf clubs in the back. I'll drive up, give my speech, play golf, and you know, it'll be a great time. And so I, I did that and I drove up, but you know, at that conference, I gave my speech and now I'm walking out of my speech and um, a young man walks up to me and he has some questions about what I was talking about. I took some time to visit with him and as I was visiting with him, I saw a little white sheet of paper on uh, a piano bench, something like that. Hmm. And it says keynote speaker conference, Steve Wozniak, inventor of the Apple computer. And I went, oh my gosh, I've never heard Steve speak. And I knew Steve Jobs. We, he actually, he tried to sell us his company a couple of times in the late 80s, early 90s at Novell. Uh, but I'd never met the Waz. And so um, I, I, I had a choice. And, and this is a definitive moment in my life where I could have gone and played golf which I love. People that know me know I love golf and I'm a low handicapper. And uh, so I was ready to go out and play some golf. But then I thought, ah, do I stay for Steve? And so I stayed for Steve and I called him up, said, uh, golf course, I'm not going to make my tea, tea time, etc." So uh, the rest of the story is that uh, sit in the front row. If you're going to go to a conference, yes. be present, sit in the front row. And that day there's 500 people in the audience, but I sat in the front row and I turned to the young lady next to me and uh, I says, my name's David Bradford. What are you doing here? She says, well, my name's Julie Roebuck. What are you doing here? And we started to exchange niceties. And I says, well, what do you do for a living? She says, well, I'm Steve Wozniak's executive assistant. Wow. And when she learned a little bit about my background, she says, oh my gosh, you're an IT guy. Would you mind staying around to visit with Steve after his speech? She's asking me, would I mind? Yeah. So I said, of course. And uh, so we visited with Steve. And in fact, uh, as we were walking out of the audience or out of the um, thing that day, he handed me his business card. Now you can't really see that, but I still carry it in my wallet to this day. And you can kind of hear it, but it's a metal business card. Wow. So if you want to be noticed, 
if you want to be memorable, create a metal business card. Differentiation. He, I like it. Yeah. He handed me that. And I came back that night and uh, I'd just become CEO of a new company called Fusion IO. And I emailed him after our visit and I said, Hey, would you consider joining my advisory board? 24 hours later, Waz got back to me and he says, I would be honored to join your advisory board. Within three months, we'd hired him as our chief scientist. Wow. All because of that initial decision to stay and watch the event, right? Right. Rather than go golf. And, and, and if you go back, there were about, in my book, I described 13 points of time where I could have done one thing, but I did another. It all started, by the way, with a baby doctor who invited me to go to lunch with him. He had some questions that he wanted to visit with me about from a legal standpoint. Hmm. Went to that lunch and boom, 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 boom. It's just one thing after another. So you never know what those small decisions in your life can do. Hmm. And uh, later, uh, six months after we hired Steve, we were named America's most innovative company. <laughs> wow. So you bring in someone like that and it, yeah. it gives a wonderful endorsement to what you're doing. So, but much more on that. And uh, it was a lot of fun and he's a terrific guy, humble. I got to tell you, Steve Wozniak is one of the most humble individuals I have ever met. So I really appreciate you sharing that because, you know, I think for a lot of us, especially, you know, for this audience, we think we're like, well, what's, what's going to be the quantitative result here? Like I want some data that's going to first prove <laughs> that making this investment is going to be worth it. But this is so qualitative. You never know, like you said, but you do know over time and you listen to people's careers. Like it's those specific moments where you decided to go to lunch, go to the event, sit in the front row, actually meet somebody face to face. There are these big turning points, right? When you invest in that time. Absolutely. Fascinating. And you show genuine interest in them mm. as I did was that day. And I got to tell you, he reciprocated and he showed interest in Novell because he was very aware of uh, Novell's success. Mm. And we talked about that. And he says, well, do you know this engineer or that engineer and that sort of thing? And so um, anyway, long story short, it all worked out. So great. And, and so I want to make sure we have time to talk more about the book too, because you, you, the subtitle is these six timeless principles, right? So the, we're going to put, and we have put the link to the book and I'll show it here after the, after we get done talking um, up your game, but what, you know, in terms of those timeless principles, what are they? Why are they important? Why'd you narrow it down to these six? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, and I appreciate it. You know, I have observed the rise of social media. I was in the earliest days of the internet back in the early 90s, mid 90s. I was on a uh, PBS special uh, called uh, Nerds 2.0, the inventors of the internet or something like that. And uh, so I've, I've observed this whole phenomenon uh, since, the, uh, since 1980 when I got involved in the computer industry. And as I've watched that, I've seen the technology change, but the underlying principles do not. And so that's where I came up with this concept of these, these are timeless principles, changing technology, but timeless principles. And so my six, just quickly, are you start up your network by giving with no thought of getting. 
Like, you know, as I interacted with uh, your, your folks as we prepared for this, you know, I'm genuinely interested in them. I think God gave me some kind of a blessing that, you know, showed me some natural curiosity in other people. So should be curious, ask questions, get to know them. They will reciprocate. The second thing that you've got to do in your life is to show up. So these are all my six up principles. You start up, you show up, you follow up. Mm. Now that, you know, had I just met Waz that day and then not followed up that night with an extended email explaining our technology and so forth, nothing would have ever happened there. You got to follow up and follow up within 24 to 48 hours. Mm. Um, Then you become memorable. Uh, the fourth principle that I like to talk about is to link up. And today's uh, world of social media gives us that opportunity to link up via Instagram, Facebook, you know, Google, whatever it might be, an email, and so forth. Fifth principle is to stand up, be a stand-up person in everything you do in your life. People will know that, especially in today's wild social media. If you create an act or you do something that is off color or inappropriate in your life, people are going to know about it. Mm. So be a stand-up person. And then finally, scale up. You scale up your network by working hard at it. Mm. The word network has the word work in it. So it takes time. It takes effort. I spend probably an hour or two every day connecting, building relationships, et cetera. Still. Abs- oh, absolutely. Wow. It's, it's essential to my business mm. success and uh, so forth. So those are the six principles. And, and the book was a lot of fun. And uh, people write me all the time. And, and it's, I think their comments are instructive. They, they talk about the personal way in which I present them. And then the second thing they always talk about is, boy, I thought networking was something else. But you've shown me the power of networking in an innocent sort of a, a way, a way that you can kind of flip it on its ear so that you're trying to give to other people. I love it. And for those of you listening, you know, you've seen a lot of the core principles um, embedded in those, those six essential items and, and timeless items, right? And what I, I want to call out here is that the fact that, you know, David is still spending an hour a day networking. All of us think, I'm too, I'm too busy for that. It's not important enough. It is the most important thing that you'll do. Can you spend one hour, get up an hour earlier, whatever it is, networking? It's, we've had so many people on the show that have just, you know, they had these amazing careers and, uh, you know, with, with you, you know, at the top of the list and to still spend that amount of time networking, uh, you know, for any stage of your career, it's the most important thing you can do. So I just wanted to drive that home. Right. And, and let me add to that, that the time to network is not when you need a job, (laughs) you know, the time to network is well before that spend the time, build those relationships, connect with people. I, we've got a wonderful uh, colleague now in, in New York by the name of Yasmin, who's working with us in Influent Worlds. And my gosh, she has introduced us to four different New York-based educational organizations, and she's just absolutely on fire. But it all started just by a LinkedIn connection. What do you do? Here's what we do. What do you do? And boom, suddenly uh, great things have happened. So Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. 
And uh, I just want to make sure we, we have time to talk about two other things, HireVue and FluentWorks. And with HireVue, I wanted to ask, you know, because of who we have on, what do the interviews look like for HireVue? Um, we'd love to hear your, your side of it for, on the hiring side of things. Well, I, I, listen, it, in the, at the time, back in 2011, when I became CEO, I kind of retired for six months from Fusion IO, which was this company I hired Steve Wozniak in. And, you know, I was kind of sitting on the bench trying to figure out, you know, what do I do next? And HireVue came along and um, uh, asked me to come aboard as their CEO. And so, but we make, make a digital interviewing platform that facilitates your ability to quickly and efficiently get to the best job candidates. Hmm. Um, and so uh, we send a link out uh, to say uh, you get 30 resumes for a job and maybe you narrow it down to the top six or something like that. And you send them a simple hire view link out. And in that link, it, you introduce yourself as the CEO or, you know, senior vice president or whatever job you have in the company and saying, hey, we're looking for this sort of a person. Uh, please take, you know, 15 minutes out of your busy day and take an interview. And then when they click on that link, their webcam comes on. Wow. Uh, they get to center themselves in that web link. They do a voice test, uh, et cetera. And then they're asked a series of relevant questions. And it's anywhere from maybe three questions to six questions. Seems like the, the optimal thing. Yeah. And uh, ask them about their experience. I always ask, uh, you know, about their experience, but I always ask one fun question, you know, what do you, what do, you do in your spare time or something like that? So you get a personal feel for the individual. Yes. And then you're able to look at those videos share the best ones with other people in the organization, and then bring in the really uh, top candidates so you've kind of narrowed the field uh, so you can this is great. more quickly and efficiently make a great job decision. Fantastic. And uh, so just for those of you listening, remember, you're always going to get that personal question because it's, you know, it's going to show that human side of you. We talk about that a lot. So note that uh, David said that. Also, David, so more and more companies that are doing this, whether they're doing it in an automated way or they're doing like a Skype interview first or a Zoom interview first, some sort of video interview before they bring people in. Two follow-up questions are, number one, do you still bring these candidates in in person after you choose the top ones? If so, why? And what do you look for when choosing the candidates in the videos? What do you look for in general? Well, listen, I, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, when I hired my first executive assistant at HireVue. I'd gotten 40 or 50 resumes that came in. I narrowed it to the top 12. Um, and then I kind of, um, I, I sent, you know, 12 link or uh, HireViews out. And the person who was probably 10th place on paper, <laughs> if you will, uh, from just pure experience, She's the one who got the job. Why did she get the job? Is because I saw her in that video demonstrated enthusiasm for what we were doing, a passion for what we were doing. Yeah, and you could tell she was a doer in life, right? And so Charlene Anderson was her name and she was terrific. And she's been a dear friend for many, many years now, uh, once we hired her at Hireview. But the point is, if you demonstrate enthusiasm and interest in the company uh, during that video to interview, if you will, 
you'll rise to the top of the list, even if your resume does not. Fantastic. No, that's great. So uh, very important points for all of you. Sometimes we think, especially as PhDs, if I show enthusiasm, they're going to think it's fake or I shouldn't do that. I got to be more professional. No, no. They, if you're not enthusiastic about the job, uh, they're, you know, they're not going to hire you. That's a big red flag. Right. Um, last question is uh, fluent uh, worlds. I want to make sure I got that right. Yes. Uh, so the future of language learning, can you just tell us a little bit about um, fluent world to wrap up? Right. Uh, well, fluent worlds, uh, we're revolutionizing the way people learn languages. And we do it in using what we call the virtual immersion method. What's the first word that ever always comes to mind when you're talking about language training? It's Hello? being immersed, right? Oh. Right? My kids go to an immersion school to learn Chinese, etc. But now we do that immersion on people's smartphones. So imagine the 500 million people in China today that are studying English as a second language. And there are 500 million of them studying English as a second language in China. Now they can do it on their smartphone through our app called Fluent Worlds. And they go in and they walk through a series of virtual adventures. They go to an airport, they go to a restaurant, they go to a hotel, and there they interact with a series of characters in the 3D world. So for example, if you walk into a restaurant, you're going to be uh, talking about ordering food and so forth. And uh, so I just quickly show you here on the screen, you can uh, teleport from your phone to all of these different virtual environments. You select one that you want to practice in and here's the airport, for example. So now I'm teleporting to an airport. <laughs> Hopefully you can see that. I can, that's fascinating. And there's my character. And so I click here and, you know, now I'm walking over. What? And uh, so this, I had my sound off, unfortunately. No, that's fascinating. We can, yeah, we can hi. see. Right. So she says hi. And then using voice recognition, I say, hello, Lisa. Hello, Lisa. I see Jessica talking to Chris. I did not know he was going to New York. So there you go. It's That's talking nice. about trips and vacations wow. and what you would talk about in an airport. And then I have to respond using my speech recognition system. Wow. And uh, I go through 55 different virtual adventures and Fluent Worlds teaches the 3,000 most commonly used English words. And uh, so that's kind of the core of Fluent Worlds. Wow. Much more about it, but... No, this is fascinating. So yeah, I, I was just going to make sure that we put the, um, the link up in the chat box and we did. Uh, David, so much information. Really appreciate having you on and, and thank you for spending this time with us. Um, we're going to show, I'm going to show the book here in a second. Uh, make sure that you go to, uh, we actually have an Amazon link that we'll share here. It's up your game. Make sure you connect with David on LinkedIn, please. Check out Fluent World. Check out I'm going to check out Higher View. That sounds very interesting. And uh, right. we really appreciate your time, David. Thank you. A good company. Thank you, guys. A lot of fun. I wish you the best. Bye-bye now. Please thank David in the chat box if you haven't already. Fascinating. I'm going to show the book on our screen here before we bring on our next guest. If I can find my mouse. There we go. So here is the book on Amazon. We put the link in the chat box too. 
up your game. Six timeless principles for networking your way to the top. Five stars by everyone. Wow. Great. Okay. So make sure you check out up your game. Make sure you go to David's LinkedIn profile. We'll put that in the chat box too. One more time. If you haven't, please tell him thank you in the chat box. A pleasure, David. Appreciate Bye -bye. it. Are you looking to get your first or next job in industry? You can go to CheekyRadioBonus.com right now and get our free bonus that's for this podcast episode specifically. You have to go to CheekyRadioBonus.com right now to get this bonus because after this week, the bonus expires. Every week we have a brand new bonus. So if you want this week's bonus, go to CheekyRadioBonus.com and we will send you a free bonus that will help you in your job search and help you thrive in business now. And without further ado, we have... Asia on. Hi, Asia. If you can see and hear Asia now, can you say yes in all caps and then say hello to Asia. Asia, how are you? Thanks for joining us I'm today. I'm good. I'm good. So let me just uh, play around with my sound a little bit. Perfect. Okay. Now I can hear you better too. All right. So we brought Asia on and she did us a very special favor by coming on with us in the middle of uh, directing Takeda. So we wanted to ask Asia about... Uh, business acumen to start. Again, I think a lot of PhDs have a hard time understanding how developing business acumen, how to speaking the language of business can help them get into a job, yeah. uh, let alone a management level job. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So first of all, does anyone know what acumen actually means in this context? Um, so business acumen is simply making sound business decisions. And uh, you can't really do that unless you have a sense of what business actually is and how functions work together, the types of decisions that you know you can be required to make and how that impacts the business overall. Mm. Um, so it's really about, in some ways, kind of harking back to what we were just talking about, learning a new language mm. uh, is a language to business that, that you need to learn. And there are words that you will never hear in any other context, or there are words that you guys know that have a completely different context in the business world. And so without having that kind of um, that context or that background, it can be very confusing in the business world and it can be very confusing in, to see how you fit and where you should be making decisions and where decisions are made elsewhere. Yeah, and maybe let's just, let's dive in and talk about like the biggest kind of flubs that you've seen from PhDs or technical people who come in and maybe they're trying to have a business conversation or show some sense and they're just, you know, you could tell they're like reading a book in their head and don't really understand what they're talking about versus someone who really digs in and develops that skill. Yeah. So actually, funny enough, I was, I was at a conference last weekend and I actually talked about this within SMBA and I was sitting in a bunch of scientific presentations and the biggest flub that I saw there was the complete lack of recognition by the presenters that there were industry professionals in the audience who may actually be interested in partnering with them um, and, and the work that they're doing, but mm. could not tell me why I should care about the work mm. that they're doing. So I have a very different viewpoint than someone who's going to be sitting in R&D meetings all day. And if you can't tell me the implications of your work, mm. if you're continuing on in R&D, then you've lost me. You've lost an opportunity to work with me. You've lost an opportunity to work with industry, even from like a business development perspective. And so there's a little bit of the, um, you know, understanding your audience and then tailoring what you say and how you say it to the audience. And I realized that that's presentation skills, but honestly, it's, it's the thing that's going to help differentiate you from your peers. So 
there's a little bit of the soft skills aspect of this, but then there's mm. also the harder skills and knowing the language to use when you speak about the work that you're doing. And so that's a huge flub I see PhDs do all the time literally saw it for 72 hours at this Congress um, and something I would hope to help you guys avoid. Yeah. And uh, so I was on the same note and we have these conversations a lot. Uh, you know, I was talking to another associate. In fact, they had just gotten hired. They're in this technical role and they were so tunnel visioned on, I just got to be the best at this specific technique. And that's the key to my success in this career. And you, you talk about this a lot and you try to reframe and say, well, no, like you said, soft skills, the transferable skills, the business acumen, showing that you are not just good at that technical skill is the key. So what keeps PhDs, high level technical people so focused, like the ones that you see get into a technical job and then stay in that like entry level job for five, 10, 15 years. What, what do you think the, what's the problem? And if you can explain it in a way to people who might not know they have that problem. So it's a comfort level problem. Mm. Um, so you guys get comfortable with your subject matter expertise and you have been trained in academia that subject matter expertise is critical, right? And that mm. that's what's going to differentiate you. If you can't make a connection between your subject matter expertise and how it impacts the business, that's where you lose. Mm. And so um, you have to, yes, continue to be that subject matter, right? Or that expert in that subject matter. But then you have to start wondering, well, what is it that I'm doing that impacts other areas of the business? And does the business actually care mm. about what it is that I'm doing on this particular technique, right? Um, so it's about sort of bringing yourself out of the weeds, right? Mm. And, and understanding how your work impacts other people that you work with, other functions you work with? Does it tie to the corporate objectives overall? And if you are so laser focused, um, you're not going to be able to make those connections very well. And, and again, show your value to the business overall, as opposed to, you know, being an expert in that one little area. And like Asia said, you know, as PhDs, as technical people, do, you've done experiments, you understand the power of asking the right questions. You're just, you just got to get used to asking different questions. You can find the answers. You just got to get used to an, uh, asking different ones. And talking to other people, right? So mm. a big part of my role, so in, in product development, I'm not on the R&D side. I'm on the commercial side, but I have to talk with the R&D folks and they have to talk with me to make sure that we're going after good sound science that actually is going to have a place in the marketplace, right? Mm. And so we have to come at this from two different angles with two different sets of language, right? And I need to be able to ask questions that while I don't need to know the specific details of how something is run, I need to know if it's going to work in the marketplace. And it's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable for me to admit that I don't know what the heck, you know, 90% of that work actually means, but I need to know strategically if it fits with is this going to get us revenue someday, mm. right? And what's the competitive marketplace look like? So recognizing that you don't need to have all the answers, but you mm. need to have a good set of questions so you can understand the larger impact is, is really where you should be um, striving for. Agreed. And, and I know you got a hard break here. I want to ask one more question about, about mergers and acquisitions. Sure. We're going to be talking about that tomorrow. Let's go back to why. Why is this important? What, why do... PhDs, people looking for jobs or next level job, looking for a higher level job than entry level. Why do we care about this? What does it matter? Yeah. So actually it's funny because right before we jumped on this, I was thinking about the webinar for tomorrow and um, how at any point in the last like eight years, 
you could be asking me if I was impacted by a merger or an acquisition mm -hmm. directly. And the answer would be yes. That's why you should care because mm -hmm. literally the minute you step into industry, you're, you're going to be impacted in some way by a merger or an acquisition or a reorganization. It's just the fact of going into this industry. The reason why you should care is not just that you're impacted by it, but you want to know how to navigate it so that you can continue to be successful in industry, right? Mm. So the way that you would work at a company that you think you're going to be with for 15 years might look very different if you think that you're going to be acquired or you're acquiring somebody else, right? So mm. that networking that you guys have been talking about in the last, you know, this whole radio show and for months, right? That networking becomes even more critical in an, in an environment where there's so much change. And so on the webinar, we'll talk about sort of the nuts and bolts of what a merger or an acquisition is, but I want more than anything to kind of give you some practical advice on how to navigate through that situation because it can be very stressful. And yeah, you just have to know that right now it's a massive gap in your knowledge. I mean, when's the last time you read about a university? Emerging with another university, right, or acquiring another one, doesn't happen, and it's a it's a crucial thing to know. So, please thank Asia for her time in the chat box. Asia, thanks for coming on with us. Thank you. I want to web on the webinar tomorrow. We'll have a lot of fun in that discussion. So yeah, join the you. webinar. I'm going to show that, and uh, we'll have to work on with SMBA creating that app where you can just show up to people, have somebody ask you what's a merger and acquisition or something. That was <laughs> that'd be a great idea. Anyway, if you haven't thanked Asia yet. Please thank her in the chat box. We really appreciate her coming on in the middle of her day. Thank you. Of course. Asia. Have a good one. Bye, everyone. Yara, how are you? Can you see me? Can you? I can now. How are you? Great. Thanks for joining. Thanks for the invitation. So let me uh, introduce Yara here. She is the Principal Clinical Research Associate at NAMSA a medical research organization speeding product development for medical devices, IVDs, regenerative medicine, and combination products. She earned her PhD in neuroscience from Ludwig Maximilians. Is that right? Close? In Munich. Yeah. Uh, she is, you're like, yeah. She is a results-oriented biomedical scientist specializing in neuroscience and molecular biology with two-plus years of experience working in pharmacological clinical trials, phase two and four, and medical device clinical trials in the fields of cardiovascular, vascular surgery, nephrology, diabetes, infectious diseases such as sepsis and pneumonia. Please connect with Yara if you have not, especially if you're in the association, because Yara is too. Connect with her on LinkedIn. We'll put her LinkedIn link in the chat box in the comment boxes please do me a favor and, and welcome yara to the radio show hi yara how are you hi fine you good thanks for joining us i really appreciate you being on thank you so we're talking to yara about her career transition we like to bring on phds who have transitioned dig into their specific career track what they've done what they do on a daily basis how their transition went etc and i would just like to start with why with you, Yara? Why did you want to transition into industry out of academia? Yes, I was a bit tired of uh, academia, the instability, uh, the contracts of just a few months. Um, I didn't see myself also doing a postdoc or being in the lab my whole life. So it was quite clear that um, a change was coming. <laughs> were you just bored or were you tired of like you just saw the writing on the wall in terms of the data for the career path in academia and you just said logically it wasn't going to end well? Yeah, I wanted something else uh, that just like uh, just follow the, the usual path or being doing always like research at the bench. Mm. And uh, this is something I think a lot of us face, you know, we say, okay, 
at the, we always come to a certain point where we're like, we see our future 20 years from now. It's like being visited by the ghost of Christmas future, a late night in the lab. That's what happened to me. I don't know. I'm sure it's happened to some of you. And we're like, wait a second. Am I going to be doing the same thing 20 years from now? Or, or maybe it's just a level of uncertainty. Like I have no idea where this is going anymore. Um, but I think it's important to talk about that because I'm sure a lot of you who are watching have experienced that too, right? Um, and we're seeing a lot of people say yes in the chat box. So you decided to transition. How did you eventually lock in on this specific career track as a clinical research associate? How did you find out about it? How did you, did you even know it existed? No, I didn't know. Actually, I found uh, thanks to the association. So someone recommended to me. And then I began to work uh, through the different modules. And then I realized that there was a whole world outside, <laughs> a lot of possibilities. And then uh, I thought that the CRA approach would be quite uh, like nice uh, for uh, my type of job that I wanted to, to do. And then, uh, yeah, I got it. I love that. You know, and we, we talk a lot about remembering your value as a PhD, but another way to say it is remember or actually see for the first time uh, I, all the possibilities you have as a PhD, mm -hmm. it's not just staying in academia. So you learned about this career track, then what came next? How did you start networking since that's kind of the topic today? Did you get a referral? How did you, what did it look like? Interview, maybe just give us a quick one minute. Yeah, I remind, I should remind, um, I remember I have, yeah, I work a lot in my LinkedIn uh, page. I think that's really useful. I grow to different uh, people working in the position also to learn a bit uh, more if that would be like the, the adequate position for me. Hmm. And then uh, I was in contact with some uh, recruiters and I got the position through a recruiter. Perfect. So, so you started, you updated your LinkedIn profile, yeah. which means recruiters started contacting you once you'd had it professionally. Um, mm -hmm. You started networking, you interviewed, you set up informational interviews to find out about the roles with people mm -hmm. that are working at the companies. Again, this is all part of the cheeky scientist methodology that we talk about. You yeah. got a job offer. Did you go to a site visit first or a video interview, a phone screen? I had phone screen and then I had on-site interview as well. Yeah. How many people did you talk with on the on-site interview? In the site interview, I had two people only. So my manager and then a colleague in the same position. Perfect. So this is, you know, a very similar sequence that we see very often. Phone screen, sometimes a video interview, then depending on the size of the company, you'll interview uh, multiple people, two, we've seen as high as 10 on the site visit. Um, what should we know about this particular position? And maybe we can just start by telling us what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like take an average week, what, do, what does that week look like? Yeah, it's um, there are two kind of days I would say in this uh, in this profession. So the days that you are in the hospital, that you are at your sites where the clinical trial is going mm. on, um, you need to go there to monitor the data of the patients, to talk to the doctors, to talk to the study coordinators, um, to train them if necessary. Um, so that will be like the work that you do when you are in the hospital. Mm. And then you have the days at the office where you are uh, planning your visits or writing your reports after the visit or following up with the sites if there are some issues that need uh, to be solved. Then you have some internal meetings, some meetings with the sponsor. So more like kind of admin work. Mm. Yeah. And so one thing that we had a lot of questions about is, you know, for those on-site visits. So you say monitor the data. What does that mean? 
<laughs> yeah, in this world at the end you talk always <laughs> in a way <laughs> at the beginning I was also so you need to check the, the patient's um, acta, the medical records uh, and then you need to compare it to the database where they are entered the information that uh, we ask for the clinical trial and you need to compare that the information that they are entered is correct and it's real. Mm. What's your favorite part of the position? You learn a lot and um, it's always different. You get uh, always new situations. You can think you can plan everything ahead and uh, all the possible situations, but uh, there is always a surprise of things that you yeah, didn't think uh, or problems that they happen and you need to solve them. So mm. you always learn. <laughs> always learn. I, I like it. And I want to talk about a little bit about the kind of the cross-functional departments or people you work with. So what department are you in technically, right? Depending on the size of the company, it might be a very strict uh, border around that department. And then what are some of the other departments that you interact with, some of the other job titles you interact with frequently? Yeah, like normally you are in clinical uh, department of the company or clinical monitoring even. And uh, you always have contact with project managers, of course, um, CTAs, clinical trial assistants, if they, mm. fa if they have uh, in the company, data management, very important mm. as well, um, regulatory, uh, if they are separated to perform submissions uh, to ethics committee or amendments, etc. Um, yeah, that would be kind of like the people that you have more connection or that you work more together too. And in terms of career trajectory, so we know that you recently got promoted. Congratulations. Please yeah. uh, congratulate Yara in the chat box or in a comment box. You're like, yeah, whatever, right? We all we get our job in industry and we're like, yeah, you got promoted. It's a big yeah. deal. Congratulations. It's a very big deal. This is one of our biggest goals here is to get PhDs in the, the higher level positions and it's it's not easy to do. So can you talk to us about what is the, the vertical trajectory within the clinical department that you see a lot of people going into, like maybe the second or third step? And then where are some of the lateral, you know, other departments that you see people transition into? Yes, yeah, so normally when you begin as a CRA, clinical research associate or monitor, then um, you go further in your career. So you have like different levels. You can become a senior uh, CRA and just stay like in this position if you wish so. Normally, people at some point change to project management uh, once you have uh, more experience. Um, and then you have also several levels of project manager. And no? then you can become senior project manager. So that will be like the vertical pathway. And then you have also lateral options. You can uh, normally between the company change to maybe data management department if you like are more into it, or maybe the safety department as well. That, that's one I forgot before. Mm. Or also regulatory, like uh, to be more focused on just submissions and contact with the ethics uh, committee. Perfect. Well, thank you very much for sharing this. Um, my last question to you is, let's say somebody hears, you, you know, the, what you've said here about this particular position as a, as a CRA, wants to start transitioning into it. What's the very first step? What would you recommend that they do? Once they got the position or once they are done the... Once they decide they want to, like to start transitioning, what are some of the early steps you would suggest for them or any, any tips whatsoever to get into this role? 
I think to get in contact with people that work in this field, I think it's very useful. They like uh, could really explain to me exactly what's the work about, and uh, then you get like really a better picture. Um, and concerning that today we were talking about networking, I I will also want to say or like normally people think about networking with people that you don't know that they can offer you something. But um, in my case, this new position, I got it from networking, but with my old colleagues. Ah. So at the end, this wall is not that huge, or at least in Europe. So when you work in clinical trials at some point, you know the people. Uh, and then if you show that you can do a good work and you have a good relationship with your past colleagues, you never know what can come later on. So mm. well said. So thank you, Yara, very much for your time. Congratulations again, and thanks for joining thank us on, on a workday, too. Really great to see you. Thanks. Please thank Yara in the chat box if you haven't yet already, and please congratulate her for her promotion. Those of you who are in the association can um, reach out to her directly in the private group. I will show Yara's LinkedIn profile here. Please connect with her um, if you haven't already, and again, please tell her congratulations. This takes us to the end of another Cheeky Scientist radio show podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you want to learn more about transitioning into your first or next job in industry, just go to phdsgethired.com. Go to phdsgethired.com. We will send you all of our free training materials that will help you start your job search now or help you take it to the next level in business. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Pump up the bass!